Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, yes, it's that time again. Time for Aaron and I to sit down with another fascinating guest and have a talk about the gospel and recovery and real stuff like that. Real stuff uh, like that. <laughs> that's, that's the tagline of this show. Real stuff like that. Hey, you're about to well, go out of town. It's Thanksgiving week, regardless of when this goes out. It might not be yeah. Thanksgiving week for you, but it's Thanksgiving week for us. Yeah. yeah. And you are going where? To New Orleans? Yes. What it's, in the uh, world? Well, it was kind of a last minute thing. We didn't discover, Allie and I, until last week that, um, you know, we'd kind of assumed that this Thanksgiving would proceed like all Thanksgivings and that uh, the kids and the grandkids would all come and would pick up some other strays and would have a full house. And it turns out that for very good reasons, uh, the kids have other commitments. So... uh, uh, Allie first greeted that news with tears, uh, heartbroken that we weren't going to have the family thing. And uh, then I, you know, I got the inspiration. This is a, this is a chance for Allie and me to have a, a romantic four days. So uh, I, I snagged plane tickets to New Orleans. Thanksgiving is a good time to fly. It's cheap. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so we will fly down on Thanksgiving day, rented a cute little place in the French quarter with a balcony with a Rod Island railing, you know, looking out. Of wow. Well, Thanksgiving's all about romance. I've seen that Disney Pocahontas movie. It's all about, uh, uh, Indian woman and a white dude from England. That's, that's really what Thanksgiving's about. And so yeah, I think you're doing it right. It's good. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, it's funny because I had assumed we were probably going to be spending Thanksgiving with you. Yeah. And yet, a couple weeks ago, when I was with Allie and others in your household, uh-huh. yeah, certain things were said where I was like, huh, that sounds odd for Thanksgiving. And so, yeah. I was I was equally surprised. I also wept a little, but I will not get to make out with anybody in New Orleans because of it. So lucky you. Uh, don't worry, we'll work well, it out. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna hope to you know put on my best romantic self for four days. <laughs> is this date Nate? Is date yeah, Nate got, coming back? <laughs> date, date Nate is gonna try and make another appearance. I think. My wife needs some romancing. She needs some time with just us. She did confide in me. We had a difficult conversation last Terrified week. of what's coming next, by the way, but keep going. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, she let me know that she was starting to feel a bit like a Samson widow. Oh. Uh, yeah. That's a thing. What does that mean? Well, I mean, for her, she knows that I can get sucked into anything. Uh, You know, I can get sucked into work. I can get sucked into ministry. Samson, I absolutely love Samson. And there are times when there's a lot to do. There's a lot going on. 
And, uh, but I can, I can, you know, my wife can wind up feeling alone. I need to be able to, uh, check out of Samson when I'm home and with Allie so that our conversations don't have to all be about Samson. Okay. So this is not going to be a Samson free holiday. (laughs) Uh, So many thoughts I'm filtering. Uh, (laughs) Oh, this is not a Nate Larkin phenomenon. This is something that I think a lot of spouses feel men Uh and women when their significant other starts engaging in recovery work Right. And that becomes the biggest thing. And, and they're so excited and it's so good and it's so healthy. So how can it be right. bad? But they right. feel like recovery widows. Yeah. So how do people create a balance and maintain? Because that excitement's important. You want to keep oh, that sure, passion. So how do right. you keep that passion, but keep a balance so that your spouse isn't like, I hated you before and now I resent you for recovery? <laughs> yeah, well, I do think that, you know, open communication is absolutely essential. And, uh, you know, I've had to face the fact in recovery that uh, <laughs> I'm not a particularly good lover in, in all the ways in which a woman needs to be loved. My self-centeredness goes very, very deep and it can, it can turn into a quest for self-importance or for significance or, you know, a personal safety or some other thing that, uh, that leaves Allie behind. So, you know, part of recovery for me is learning, learning how to love better, which begins with actually, you know, being here. So, I, you know, Allie, Allie did struggle with this early on in Samson. She had a, she had a rough time when we first started Samson because I really did become consumed with Samson. And while Allie was supportive, after a while, she, start to f- she started to feel kind of left behind. Uh, and, uh, you know, lately, a, a lot's been going on in Samson. Momentum is building. Great things are happening. Um, lots of new people coming through the door. Plenty to do. And uh, fortunately, Allie and I have a good enough relationship that when she sees me slipping back in that direction, she feels free to say it and I'm able to hear it. That's a great way to phrase it, though, that it's not. She simply felt resentful of your community or your Mm -hmm. recovery, but she felt left behind. She didn't want you not to be doing it. She just didn't want you to be doing it alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's right. And I think that's what any of us can feel in those moments is like, what is what you always wanted for me? Damn it. Yeah. I can't win on the other side and all that kind of self-centered craziness. Right. 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 But what they're really feeling is you're leaving me behind. I've always wanted to be on this with you. Yeah. Whatever it is, just life. So take me with you. Mm-hmm. Figure that shit out. Stop being a bastard. Mm-hmm. That's what they're thinking. <laughs> Stop being a dickhead. <laughs> well, we so, got a we got a returning guest coming up. I'm excited for our chat. We're gonna have fun, fun and high energy. That's what I'm looking for tonight. 
<laughs> and and uh, our guest will deliver when we return on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, we have a returning guest this week. Every now and again, you know, uh, somebody who's talked to us uh, actually has the nerve to come back and talk to us actually again. Actually wants and, uh, to come back. That's amazing. <laughs> and one of those guys is Tully and Tavidian, who uh, actually, I'm, you can't see him, listeners. Aaron and I can see him. We can see him on video. And so he, sexy. Uh, he looks, He's so sexy. He looks right now like he could kick my ass is yeah. what he looks like. Oh, uh, <laughs> gorgeous and svelte. <laughs> svelte. Thank yeah. you, Aaron. I, I like that. I've never been called svelte before, but I, I'm going to take that as a compliment. I don't know what it means, but it sounds good to me. <laughs> well, what were you saying, Nate? Uh, well, I, well, I can say it's it, now you would not. I would not believe it from looking at him. This man's 50 years old. He actually cracked the 5-0. Uh, but you've been spending time at the gym. Uh, you live in Florida. You got a decent tan. Uh, you're tatted up, man. Uh, <laughs> this is the most lot wrong with me, Nate. There's a lot. This is the most bizarre introduction ever. Where are you at in Florida, by the way? Uh, I'm in Jupiter. My wife and I live in Jupiter, uh, which is about 15 to 20 minutes north of West Palm Beach. I'm from Fort Lauderdale, which is about 45 minutes south of where I'm sitting right now. Um, so yeah, I, I was born in Jacksonville, Florida and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm a Florida native, uh, love South Florida, love the warm climate, love the ocean, always have grew up around on near the ocean. Um, so, so I've lived in it. So, so tell us what's been happening since the last time we chatted, you've got things yeah. rolling in different ways, new things going on. There are some new things going on. Uh, I think I talked a little bit about the sanctuary, which was the mm -hmm. church that my wife and I started about two years ago here in Jupiter at the request of a group of people. Um, it's going really, really well. I, I jokingly tell people that the sanctuary is a recovery place masquerading as a church. And I say that jokingly, but in reality, that's kind of the way it is. I think that's actually a better description of who we are than if I just simply say we're a church, uh, mm -hmm. because people come with preconceived ideas of what that is, and whatever that is is not what we are. Can you can um, you define the difference between what people expect from a quote church and a church that is masquerading as a recovery place? You mean a recovery place masquerading as a church? Yeah. Well, right. either, yes, yes, either yes. way that they want to define it, what's the difference? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's a great question. We named our church the sanctuary for a reason. Um, and the reason we named it the sanctuary is because we wanted we wanted to we wanted it to be a place where people felt the freedom and the safety to tell the truth about themselves without fear. Mm -hmm. Now uh, we will always have fear when we're telling the truth about ourselves, even if we're in the safest place imaginable. Um, there's always a little bit of fear, even going before God, who I know loves me unconditionally, going, uh, I got something to say. Um, so we will always experience that. But our, our hope and our prayer has been from the beginning that 
we would attract the same kinds of people that Jesus attracted by preaching the same message that Jesus preached. Because I've said for years now that if we're not attracting the same kinds of people that Jesus attracted, then we're not preaching the same message Jesus preached. And I have discovered that, uh, number one, I've never met anybody who has rejected Christianity because they are rejecting things like grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. That's not what they're rejecting. What they're rejecting is what they've been told Christianity is, which is some sort of moralistic framework that is primarily concerned with behavior modification, doing more, trying harder, climbing higher, getting better, those sorts of things. And the honest people finally admit, I can't do it. I can't pull it off. And so they they walk away. That was that was me as a, as a teenager. I grew up in a, this wasn't the case in my home, but in the Christian schools that I went to and some of the churches that I went to, Sunday school, youth groups, that sort of thing. I, I was I was under the impression that the focus of the Christian faith was the life of the Christian and that Christianity is primarily about me and what I do for God. And I finally got to the point where I was like, man, I, if Christianity, it seems like what they're saying is Christianity is for good people who, for the most part, have it all together. I'm not good. I don't have it all together. I don't even want to be good. So Christianity, therefore, must not be for me. And it wasn't until, you know, I crashed and burned in my early 20s that I realized um, and through a handful of very good, wise men who helped me see differently that uh, God loves and uses people who fail because people who fail are all that there are. Well, that turned things upside down and inside out for me. And I started to see God a little bit differently at that time. And then that sort of grew over time. Um, but what I discovered was that uh, inside the church, for the most part, and I've, you know, I've had the privilege um, uh, and the curse in some cases of being in church leadership now for over two decades. So I've seen behind the curtain. Uh, I've lived behind the curtain in a lot of different ways. Um, and what I discovered is that uh, churches in particular and the Christian community in general tend, tend to be the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and for broken people to break down, which is a travesty to me. And while I always knew that, um, you know, I, I kind of, I knew that intellectually, it wasn't until I experienced it myself that I realized just how damaging it can be um, when you feel abandoned uh, by Christians because you've screwed up, uh, it's a very lonely place. Let me let me pause to ask you, Nate, this, and I'll throw it back to you, Tullian. The idea of disqualification from leadership mm -hmm. is a dangerous, slippery slope, and terrifying place for anyone to live in yeah because it comes with certain things like oh if you did this or that you're out but if you're just an arrogant bastard you can still be in but mm -hmm. you know it's it's a weird thing so nate tell me about your thoughts on disqualification 
coming from a place where you were never more qualified than the moment that you should have been disqualified. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- that's what I think is the sad irony. I see, um, you know, I meet men all the time. Uh, I suppose women as well, but I'm more aware of the men who uh, have, quote, fallen from leadership. They've hit the wall. Uh, in the Samson Society these days, in our uh, virtual meetings, you know, we've got thousands of guys in virtual meetings, and a significant percentage of those men uh, have a history of some time in, uh, you know, vocational Christian service. Many of them, some of them still pastors. A lot of them have stories of having served in some role in the church as a youth pastor or a senior pastor or teaching pastor. And then uh, the shit hit the fan, Right. They crashed and burned. Their sin became public. Uh, and especially if their sin was of a sexual nature, they were uh, sent to. This, you know, the sad irony to me is now that these guys are in recovery and experiencing all of the deep character work, the healing and the transformation, the, the deeper repentance and the deeper healing that comes uh now they are so much better qualified for the job hmm. than they were before. Um, and, and, and to me, it's just absolutely tragic. It's sadly ironic that so many of those folks can't find their way back into ministry and they're willing to go back into ministry. For me, going back into the church now would just be a scary thing. I think I'm more useful and can do more damage as a, uh, as a civilian. But frankly, I think I'm, you know, I'm 20 times more of the pastor today mm. than I was when I was bright and shiny and they were paying me to do it. Yeah, that's hilarious mm. that you call yourself a civilian. We don't think we don't <laughs> think he's a civilian, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think you're a civilian. Uh, yeah. So tell me, tell me what you're thinking, Tullian, while you're hearing him talk about that. I mean, I am shouting amen super loud on the inside. I mean, I uh I could not agree more. And interestingly, um, you know, I, I obviously had to take some time off. I mean, I needed yeah. it. Uh I there needed to be some deconstructive work that God did for me and in me and to me. Um and so you know I see sometimes guys crash and burn and and they want to jump right back in right away, and they mm-hmm. argue for the fact that they, they may even use some of the same verbiage that Nate just used about how they're ne- they've never been more qualified than they are right now, which may be true later. Yeah, right. <laughs> Once yeah. work is done, um, and and I know that because I tried getting back on the saddle a few times uh, in that first year after I crashed and burned in 2015. And God shut it down every time. And it really discouraged me because I began thinking that I was now useless. And what I discovered in time is no, I'm not useless. I'm I'm it's you know, I, I'm an injured player and I'm in rehab. And if I get back on the field too soon, I risk further injury and perhaps, you know, I'll never be able to play again. So uh for God to sort of uh sit me out for an extended season for a couple of years. Um, was necessary for me. And I think it's, you know, there's no timeline for these things, but it's, it's necessary for, for uh, people to uh, 
after crashing and burning, it's necessary for them to go, okay, I didn't end up here out of nowhere. I mean, I ended up in this place. I ended up, you know, in this dark, desolate place, um, you know, for, for a reason, uh, there were things amiss. There were things happening or not happening that, uh, that sort of precipitated this. So, you know, doing all of that, uh, sort of therapeutic work is absolutely necessary. So, so let's, let's unpack that because when you say that I'll, I'll play the Pharisees advocate right now. Okay. That didn't just come out of nowhere. That's just an excuse for you to justify sin. Hmm. unpack that feeling of if you say it doesn't come out of nowhere, you're looking for a reason right. for justification yeah. of some behavior, something that happened. How do you respond to that in a gospelicious way? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say every, we all live, move and have our being within a complex framework of fallenness. And what that means is that, uh, our, we are broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. Um, and that affects us externally, but it affects us internally. I mean, it affects the way we process things. It affects the way we respond to things. Why do I have this proclivity and not that proclivity, but my brother has this proclivity and not that proclivity. Um, why, why do I have the particular insecurities that I have? Why do I have the particular fears that are unique to me? What, you know, what is this? My archaeology, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that internal deep stuff that's there. Um, so it's not so much that I'm looking outside of myself for why it happened. I'm looking inside of myself for why it happened. So to the Pharisee who would say, you're looking for something to blame outside of you. I said, no, I'm just excavating what's what's going on inside of me, not because I'm trying to blame something or someone else, but because I'm trying to come to grips with how this even happened. How did I get from here to there? How did this happen? I didn't start off over here. And that's a beautiful and important thing because Mm -hmm. that is the Pharisee saying you're trying to, to avoid how -hmm. did this happen, which is an acknowledgement this happened. I arrived yeah. here. This is yeah. real. I confess this is real. Okay, are we done with that confession? Can I now figure out how did I end up here? Yeah. And that's and, and, an important and, question. And it's not as as is the case uh with most Pharisees, uh, even the one the Pharisee that lives inside all of us, is that we initially think um that the our biggest problems, our greatest obstacles, what's preventing me from mental, spiritual, emotional health, uh, the biggest obstacles are outside of me. It's this. It's this world we live in. It's this marriage I'm in. It's this person that I'm re- that I'm connected to. It's it's what's not happening in my life, or it's what is happening in my life. And the fact of the matter is that the greatest obstacle to emotional, mental, spiritual health is inside of us. That's what Jesus said when the Mm -hmm. Pharisees, of course, were so fixated on his disciples eating on the Sabbath. Yeah. Um, And Jesus's comeback was, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of a man. In other words, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Your problem's inside of you. And so I just, I think so many Christians get fixated on 
fixing the behavior that they it's it's like deck chair arranging on the Titanic. I mean, okay, fine. You can, you know, I mean, you can, you can address your behavioral issues, but if you, th- that's the fruit of the problem. The, the root is much deeper than that. And it's, it's in, it's in our hearts and it's, it's the only place, you know, it's Jesus over and over and over again in the gospels. I've been reading the gospels afresh recently because I've been doing some writing and, uh, and it's just so interesting how Jesus always gets to the heart of the matter. Always. He's always wading through, uh, navigating his way through all of the behavioral issues, the law keeping or the law breaking, the behavioral issues that the people around him seemed so fixated on. And he was always getting to the heart of the issue. He's always addressing the heart. And I just, you know, I think that oftentimes that's that's missing inside the church. And so there, there needs to be, there needs to, when, when, when somebody crashes and burns and bottoms out when the shit hits the fan, like Nate said, when that happens to take a step back and say, and hopefully you have some people around you who like I did, thankfully that every time I wanted to take a step forward, they're like, no, 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 no. Come back, come back. We're, there's, there's work to be, you'll get back out there, buddy, relax, but there's, there's work to be done here. Uh, and if the work doesn't get done, bigger problems are on the horizon. Um, so I, I, you know, taking that time to do that work, but then once that work commences and it continues for the rest of our lives and renewed self-awareness begins to take root and you begin to understand who you are and who God is in deeper, bigger, better, brighter ways, you understand your your sort of your fallen condition. You understand the human condition a little bit better. Um, that is when, and I am in absolute, total, wholehearted agreement with Nate. Uh, that is when these guys, these men, these women become, in my opinion, more qualified than they ever were when they were clean. I, I concur with Nate. I was pastoring for years, years at a high level in important places. And I am pastoring now this small little church filled with a bunch of ragamuffins that I love with all of my heart more than I've loved anybody else I've ever pastored. And it's not because I didn't care about the people before. It's that, man, I mean, I I now know in a way I didn't before what death and despair smells like, what regret and guilt and shame smells like what it tastes like. And so when people come to me broken as they are, I'm not just hearing what they're saying. I'm feeling what they're feeling. And I think that's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Both are necessary. Both are good. But sympathy is, man, I hear what you're saying. Empathy is, man, I feel what you're feeling because I've been there too. And and I, that's that's Life is slower now, um, you know, according to, you know, certain powers that be, uh, I'm not qualified to be doing the work that I'm doing like you were talking about before. Um, and yet I just think that is such an incredibly dangerous posture to take. It's it's almost like you're you're walking on holy ground when you start making pronouncements like that. You're, what you're essentially saying is that, um, and even though God may be saying 
this guy. I've, I have broken this guy down to nothing. I have killed him and I've brought him back to life for such a time as this. And you're saying, no, you haven't. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of like it's, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's a wonderful Dublon Tundra. You're walking on yes. holy ground as in there's a lot of holes in that ground. To fall <laughs> uh, and, you know, the other thing I would say is people go to the Timothy and Titus passages, you know, qualification, disqualification. And, you know, my, my take on that has always been, um, first of all, in context, what, what, what Paul is saying to Timothy and Titus is, okay, listen, you're going to need help in planting these churches and running these churches. I'm going to just sort of, I'm going to just spitball some qualifications. These are the kinds of people you need to be looking for to help you. Okay. So he starts, you know, describing some character, not an exhaustive list. He's just kind of like spouting off what comes to mind. These things come to mind. Um, and, uh, it's supposed to serve as a guardrail. So if you're like, Hey, Joe, um, you know, I want you to serve in this capacity. And Joe's wife comes to you and says, Hey, I heard you just asked Joe to serve in this capacity, but, um, you know, he's been beating me up every night for the last four years. Well, okay. You go, you know what, Joe, <laughs> now's not the time you need to work on this and we need to help you over here. Maybe in time, Joe can serve, but now's not the right time. So I just, I've, I've gone back and said uh, to people who have used the argument that uh, these passages disqualify people for life. And I say, okay, um, exegetically, it is impossible to prove that a failure to meet any of those qualifications at any point in your life uh, disqualifies you for life. There's nothing that says that. There's nothing in the text that even insinuates that. It's just kind of a way of going, hey, you're going to need you're going to need some trustworthy people around you to help you carry this load. And if this, if there's a weak link over here or a weak link over there, because these guys' private lives are in complete disarray, get them the help they need. And once they get the help they need, then they can come and serve, and they'll probably be better for it. So well, let's let's pause. And Nate, I'm curious for you to add to this list. There's a version of Christian redemption that goes lost, bad behavior, find Jesus better forever. Like it's right, very yeah, linear. Right, right. Yeah. Where you have people like David or Hezekiah, or I don't know, I'm talking off the top of my head right now, but mm-hmm. I've, I've wanted to make a list of people who were great young. And, mm-hmm. and that's me. That's mm-hmm. my story. I was passionate young. I wanted to be very responsible with my faith young. And then you hit that time and doesn't it always happen in your forties? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it did where, for me. where you're like, I'm, I'm now I'm tired. I don't care. I've done mm. my duty. Bob Dylan did his uh, Christian albums for what? Three years. And he's like, see, I did three years. Jesus did three years. I'm out. Uh, and, <laughs> like good for you only three years you lucky bastard yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's the christian story where it's like no there's a version of this where you don't start with lost don't know jesus did a bunch of blow mm-hmm. whatever uh and and then found him and everything was better there's a version that is i loved you i got tired 
I just gave up and now I'd like to come home. Hmm. And I think hmm. the Bible has that story in it, but that's not the fucking story that's told. Hmm. Not to me. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, that very poignant scene in John where, you know, Peter is certain that he's blown, he's blown it mm. so bad. He's just left in shame. He's done. He's out. And, uh, you know, Jesus, like you said, Tullian, he goes straight to the heart of the matter, mm. straight to the heart. Mm. All right. So you've screwed up. Do you love me? Mm. That's it. Do you love me? Ask him three mm. times. Mm-hmm. And then just says, go feed my sheep and commissions him again. And I, one thing that strikes me about Peter is that those failure stories that are so precious and encouraging to all of us screw ups could only have been told if Peter had told them himself. Yeah. Okay. Nobody yeah. was around when he denied Christ to the servant girl. Mm-hmm. That was a private moment with Jesus. Uh, but Peter, later in his life, like Paul, gloried in his weakness, loved to talk about his failure. Because the greater my sin, the greater my forgiveness, the greater my redemption, the greater my joy. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's not linear. No. And, and, uh, and the same is true for recovery. You know, it, you, know you hit recovery. You get that you get that first season of sobriety from whatever your besetting sin is, and perhaps you're one of the the few who never ever relapse. But the mm. odds are relapse is going to play a, a part in your recovery. We mm. stumble our way towards sobriety. We learn in fits and starts. But if it's a one strike you're out arrangement. Whether it's with a church or whether it's a, with a, a, a boss or whether it's a partner. Oh, man, that just tweaks recovery so bad and yeah. sets a guy up to hide again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly what Threat it does. Pattern flying. You know, uh, Nathan, I'm, gosh, I'm listening to, I mean, Aaron, sorry. Uh, I'm listening to, what Nate's saying. And I'm just like, okay, just keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> I mean, it's so, so true. And it's so good. I, I, um, I love to talk about the fact that we, if you grew up anywhere in near or around the church, um, you know, you, you sort of, heard, if it wasn't explicitly said, it was at least implied that, uh, the, the Christian life is progressive in mm-hmm. this sense. It's progressing upward. It's, um, it's <laughs> uh, getting stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day. It's like I needed Jesus a lot at the beginning of my Christian life, but mm-hmm. Christian growth is, uh, is, me, is me growing, is, is my need for Jesus growing less and less because I'm being empowered to stand on my own two feet. Sure. Whereas when I look at, it's, when I look at it's the oh. anti-Galatians version of the church. <laughs> Just <laughs> yes. it on the power of your own flesh. Don't worry about yes. it. Forget that well, book and, Galatians. That book sucks. Well, and listen, this is so funny because this stuff is all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. How we have come up with a completely antithetical message and we say it's from the Bible is mind blowing to me. But so you look at, 
uh, you look at Paul, for instance, in Philippians chapter three. Okay, most of the way, most of the ways in which we think about the Christian life is that you know we're getting getting better and better and stronger and stronger, and we're moving up. We start we start low and we get high. Okay, Paul, yep. on the other hand, says. Let me tell you where I started. Started Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth yeah. day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. When it came to God's law, I knew it better than everybody. My religious resume was more impressive than anybody on planet Earth. And then I met Jesus. And over the course of my life, he has been systematically deconstructing me so that now I'm able to say I'm the chief of sinners. So you start high and you end up low rather than start low and end up high it's the exact opposite of what we're typically told and by low it brings us back to him saying hey you want to find me yeah be like a kid who just isn't even trying and i I think back to you saying like searching for reasons on the exterior but you find that the problem's on the interior and i just hear that gospelicious voice of our father who says, Oh, I've already taken away your heart of stone. I love mm. your heart. Tullian, mm. I love your heart, you sweet yeah. baby boy. Yeah. And just, yeah. just yeah. come back to that. And that is what low is that yeah. it is low in all of the reasons that a Pharisee would find it repulsive because it has no status, mm. but it has all of the status in the kingdom of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and here, let me, I want to, I, I wrote a, a small piece not long ago called I once was found, but now I'm lost. <laughs> and the whole, the whole point, um, and I looked at the parables, uh, of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke 15. Mm-hmm. Those are the two less famous parables in Luke 15. The parable of the prodigal mm-hmm. son is the most famous. Yeah. It just takes um, it over those poor other parables. I know they get left in the dust Uh, and I love all of those parables, but man, the parables of the lost sheep and lost coin are powerful Um, because when I was growing up, those two parables were explained to me as parables of evangelism. You know, I was told that these, these parables were Jesus' way to describe the lengths to which we found people should go to reach people who aren't Christians or the lost. Um, In other words, they were, they were parables. These parables were job, God's job description right. for us. As, as opposed um, to his heart description of how he feels about us. Yes. That, and, and, I, and I just, so I wrote this. I said, that interpretation split the world into two kinds of people, lost people and found people. The lost people were those who did not know God, and the found people were those who did. And while that is one way to divvy up the human race, it, al- it also makes a very wrong-headed and simplistic assumption which is that Christians don't get lost or that Christians have no need to be found. I'm convinced that we desperately need to rediscover the reality of Christian lostness, because if we don't, then all we are left with when a Christian wanders off into the far country and gets lost in his or her self-induced messiness is to doubt whether they were ever found in the first place. Sadly, this assumption is made all the time. Without a robustly real category of Christian lostness, what we often hear is that when a, profes- when a professing Christian goes off into the dark, it can only mean that they were never in the light to begin with. But the fact of the matter is the Bible is filled with examples of Christian people who get lost. And the thing about the Peter story, Nate, that I love is that uh, he denies, where is he not going to deny Jesus? <laughs> He denies him. 
he feels like shit about it. Jesus lovingly forgives him and restores him. And you don't have to fast forward probably more than 10 or 12 years. <laughs> I mean, you know, it up again. Has, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah Paul right. has to get on to him in front of everybody because in a sense, he's denying Christ. Peter's denying Christ again by refusing to eat with the Gentiles. And Peter's like, what the hell's the matter with you? You're denying the work of our Lord all over again. So I find, <laughs> I find the relapses of the saints very encouraging. Very encouraging. So so would you say we can sum all of that up with the way all three of us were raised? And I'm assuming hmm. this about you, Tolian. I know it about Nate. And I know it about myself, is that we grew up where the gospel was for the unsaved. Yes. Once you mm-hmm. get saved, it's about discipline, sin management, and put your coins in the in the the little, well, I had a little box that was in the shape of a church. Anyways. Of church, but, yes. Uh, yeah, you had one of those too? Oh, good. My yeah. parents faithfully taught me to give 10 cents of my $1 a week. Uh, yeah. money. But growing, growing up, I have found that I believe most, my most treasured belief is that the gospel is for Christians yes. as much as yes. it is for those who have never believed. Yes. And we never, we never, ever outgrow our need to hear it is finished ever, ever. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think it's Tim Keller who says it like this, that we, um, you know, when God saves us, he doesn't move us beyond the gospel, but just more deeply into the gospel. And I, I think that that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we, um, we, it, it was, I, I was confused. I, and, and listen, I'll tell you this. I went, I was in, I grew up in a remarkable Christian home. I was given this great Christian heritage. I grew up going to Christian, the best Christian schools, uh, well-known Christian churches where the Bible was preached. And I mean, all of that stuff. Okay. Uh, left home and dropped out of high school, went off, went to the far country for a few years, came back. Uh, God rescued me. Uh, I went to uh, Christian college uh, and graduated with honors. Uh, after that, I, was, didn't, I didn't start college. I was 22. Um, went then to a, a very reputable and academically rigorous seminary, uh, and which at the time was the, was the fastest growing seminary in the country. Uh, and it wasn't until I was out of all of that and pre-pastoring for three years that I heard, heard that the gospel is for Christians too. It, that made no sense to me. I'm like, I was exposed to the absolute best that everything, the best that evangelicalism had to offer in terms of my upbringing, the people that were around me, the schools that I went to, um, all of that stuff. And I was already ordained and pastoring a church before I had even heard anybody say the gospel is for Christians too. So I'm going, okay, that's freaking dangerous, man. (laughs) I mean, to grow up with the kinds of influences I had all around me and being able to have the opportunities to go to the places that I went for schooling and to have never heard in, in a book that was assigned to us, in a class that was taught by a sermon that I heard, anything that the gospel is for Christians too, that's it's scary. And then we wonder why there's this mass exodus uh, from churches and Christians. It's like, dude, people are finally getting honest and realizing I can't do it. <laughs> if this is what Christianity is, I'm out, dude, because I can't do it. Um, 
So I just, I think this idea that the gospel is for Christians too is, man, damn, dude, it's so, so vital. So vital. Man, damn, dude. Yes. (laughs) There it is. The gospel is for you Christians as much as for those that you're giving uh, the four spiritual laws or the wordless book to. Damn. Wait, what was it? Damn. What were the three? Damn. You know, when I get amped up, I don't keep track of what I'm saying. I'm I'm sticking with that. Well, (laughs) all right. We need to talk about some stuff that's coming up in your world. So lead us into that. Talk to us about this conference that's coming up in February. Yeah, so this is a, we've been planning this for about five months or so. Uh, me and a small team of people will be hosting it at the sanctuary in Jupiter um, uh, in February. A lot of people want to come to South Florida in February from wherever they live, so it's a it's a great time to host a conference. Um, I uh, it's called Fallen and Free, uh, and the whole premise of the conference is that. Uh, when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us unconditionally and that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, uh, that we never have to fear his rejection because of what Jesus has done for us. What? When we know that. Team five we say that, you're making it up. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. uh, When we know that to be true, then we feel the freedom to admit our fallenness. We feel the freedom to tell the truth about ourselves instead of to hide. Right, and so, yeah. so we, we, uh, so we've put this event together. You know, we, we have a small local congregation, but our online reach is really big. So we have a lot of people uh, who consider us their home church from all around the world. And this gives them an opportunity to finally walk through our doors. It gives them an, a reason, an excuse to come and sort of be a part of the physical family for a couple of days. Um, it's February 17th and 18th, I think. Um, it's President's Day weekend. Uh, it's So it's a Friday and a Saturday. We're encouraging people to stay over for the service on Sunday morning. Um, I've invited some of my good friends, people that I really dig, people like Nate Larkin, uh, <laughs> my friend Steve Brown, um, John Lynch, who's a friend of mine uh, out of Arizona, a friend of mine named Russ Johnson, and two dear friends of mine who pastored me through all of my crap, Paul Zoll and Pat Thurmer. Uh, Paul's a retired Episcopalian minister, has written a number of books, probably the smartest man I know. And Pat Thurmer is a pastor, was is a retired pastor of a small Lutheran church in the southwest coast of Florida. That my wife and I moved from Texas to Fort Myers simply to attend this church. We moved halfway across the country just because that was the kind of community we were looking for. So, so uh, yeah, it'll be two days. Uh, it's going to be, we want it to be uh, liberating relieving this isn't a this isn't a uh, a conference that is where you'll leave with a bunch of things to go out and do to make your life better this is just an opportunity to exhale and to sort of bask in the reality that um that we are loved unconditionally and that sets us free to be honest and tell the truth about ourselves so that's happening in february um which how, I'm super how, do, how do people find that? To bathe yeah. in the waters of gospeliciousness, and there are no snakes that will bite you no. during the services no, there, there are no in Florida. None of that. <laughs> There's no snakes. You might get bitten by an alligator, but no snakes. Um, people can go to, if they go to our church website, just thesanctuaryjupiter.com. 
thesanctuaryjupiter.com. There's a tab that says Fallen and Free Conference. People can register. I think for the next couple of weeks, we're still doing early bird registration. So it's 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 not expensive. It's it's pretty cheap. Um, and uh, space is limited because our the room that we are in only seats 200 people. So and we want to do it at our place. So space is limited. It's kind of first come first serve. But so we're we're excited about that. We're super excited about this. this is our first. I, I used to I started and hosted a conference years ago in Fort Lauderdale uh, at the church I was pastoring at that sure. time. And the conference is called Liberate. And that became this big, massive thing. It was, it was awesome. I, I loved it. But it's this big, massive thing. This is, this is, um, this, the message will be the same at this conference as it was at Liberate, but uh, the messengers are going to be a little different. Um, these are all people who in one way, shape or form have either crashed and burned or they are faithful and walking with people who do crash and burn. So so we're, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm uh, I'm also writing a book for the first time. I've I've I haven't written a book in seven years, and um, and I'm in the process of writing uh, my memoir over the for the last seven years, like what my life has looked like over the last seven years. It is oh, a good. Long, unedited retelling of my story, um, and so uh, so I'm I'm about. 33, 35,000 words into a, what will probably be a 50 to 60,000 word book. Um, oh, and that's how, been keeping how is, me busy. How has that felt? Like has mm. that felt you've, you've had certain things publicized that you probably felt like, Oh my gosh, that's not accurate. And mm-hmm. then you've told the story in ways that you wanted to edit your own version of how you told it. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. here you are in full control of telling a story that you have wanted to revise or regale things from the past. How has that felt? Man, it has been a process. I have a, an editor friend who's helping me. He's just he's amazing. A good friend of mine named John Blaze. And, um, and uh, John Blaze helped Brennan Manning with his memoir at the end of Brennan's life. Mm-hmm. And so he was the guy that I went to and just said, man, I, if I could get anybody to help me with this, it would be John. Um, and so uh, it has been uh, cathartic for me. Uh, I have been reliving some of the darkest, saddest, angriest moments of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it sort of dawned on me the other day that, uh, I'm, I'm learning things now about myself because I'm being forced to reflect on things in a pretty profound way, given some space and time and some perspective. Um, and, uh, it has been, uh, gosh, what's the best way from, it's been therapeutic. Um, I have found myself weeping. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, not a crier, but I'm also not a bubbling mess, but I have found myself weeping. Um, I have, it has spurred some really good conversation. My 21 year old daughter who lived through all that crap seven years ago lives with us. So I've been reading her sections of it as I've been wow, going along. How she responded. Tell me. Oh, she's, she's amazing. I mean, she's amazing. She, she, you know, everything that's in the book, she knows, uh, there's nothing in there, uh, yet. That she's like, I didn't know that. They, she, she'll know. I mean, there are some details that she didn't know. Um, that you know. They so, know. so has she been so, like compassionate towards you, or? Oh my gosh, you? man! No, her and my wife. I, I live with two amazing women, my wife and my daughter. 
Um, and they, you know, they're just, they're my sounding board. Uh, I read stuff to them. I ask them what they think. Um, Stacy, my wife helps me significantly, uh, with just wording things because she lived, I mean, Stacy met me soon after I crashed and burned. So she lived through a lot of those early days with me. Um, and so she's helping me reflect on it too. It's, this is, let me put it this way. Um, I, I want this book to get finished and I want it to get published, but if it never gets published and if I'm writing it for the next three years, I see the wisdom in that in terms of what, why God yeah. has me doing it now. I mean, I, the book that I'm writing now, I could not have written. I would not have been able to write before now. Yeah. Um, I just couldn't have. I mean, and it's not that I wouldn't have wanted to. It would have just felt different. I, I just, God knows exactly what he's doing. His timing has been perfect in terms of my own process of recovery. Um, you know, I was writing the other day about how I wasn't offered a disciplinary process from uh, the denomination that I was ordained in. They just defrocked me. My, they, yeah. my, uh, my discipline was my defrocking. But here's the thing. In retrospect, I'm glad they didn't offer that to me because had they offered it to me, I would have jumped through any prescribed hoops they would have given me for all of the wrong reasons uh, just to get my life back, to get my stuff back. What I didn't know at the time was that God had his own discipline and restoration process in store uh, that went on for years afterwards um, that was just so – and I'm still in it. And so and, I, and sort didn't of require a frock. There was no frock necessary <laughs> for your frock to be removed, and Jesus still had a place. I was like, I was defrocked and dismembered. <laughs> uh, so, um, but you know, I, I, uh, I, I have. It has been. I, I, I. That's the way I explained it to a couple in our church the other day. They asked me. They said, "So how's it going?" And I said, "You know." Uh, I've written seven books and I have said about all of them, when people ask, do you like to write? I have said, I've, I've, I've hijacked this line from my grandmother who, when asked the same question would always say, I like to have written. <laughs> and that was her way of saying, I write because I have to, but I'm really glad when it's over. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always been the case for me too, except this time. I'm actually enjoying the writing process because it is so probing and so personal. And I'm like, if this, if this never gets published, at least it's coming out of me right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's getting out. It's getting out. So, well, we could spend yeah. another hour talking about how every person really should write their own autobiography for exactly yes. that reason. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. For yep, I agree. no purpose of publication. Right. Don't you hang up. But Nate, we're reaching the end. So you're going to start wrapping this up without a closing segment. See how I'm doing this better than last time? I'm being very clear. <laughs> Tully and staying. Nate, do your do. Okay. So this is how I, So this is how we're going to end the episode then. Well, I Does thought that I made that clear, and now you're making it seem like I didn't make it clear. I thought I did a good job this time. Okay, you did. <laughs> you did. All right. Well, it throws my rhythm all off because I, you know, I've always closed the episode the same way for what three hundred freaking episodes. Now we're, <laughs> but this is good. This is good. <laughs> Listeners, don't go away, and you don't have to come back. We're all together, <laughs> and we're going to end the episode. <laughs> we're going. 
we're going to the episode, first of all, by thanking our guest, Tully Intervision. Uh, thank you, man, for your presence, for your passion, uh, and for your faith. And uh, I can't wait to see you in February. Hmm. Uh, listeners, we want to hear from you. Uh, you can reach us at uh, piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. And I think we're going to wrap it there. What do you think? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that seems like mostly the, the shit you say at the end of an episode. So that's good. <laughs> Wait, can I say something? <laughs> yeah, can I yeah, say something sure, yeah. that makes it on the final cut? Okay. I just want, I want to say thank you guys for inviting me back. I don't, I don't often get invitations. Back. <laughs> I try to burn my bridge when I leave. Uh, no, but thank you. I, I am so grateful for what you guys do. In fact, I just got a text from a guy yesterday, yesterday morning, who said that. He said, I found this men's group that I've been going to that's been really helping me. It's I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called the Samson Society. <laughs> yesterday he said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I hear about uh, just the work that is being done through you guys all the time. And we are so, so much on the same team. And I am grateful to be in, uh, you know, in the foxhole with you guys. All right. It's great having you. Well, that does it for this episode then. Until next time. Hey, you get to say your name as we close this thing. Okay. Tully. Uh, Until next time. I'm Nate. I'm Tullian. And I'm Pepe. (laughs) (laughs) And we are your pals. On the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hola! The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>